Inside the Paris Sea Palace, high above 3773's Broadway, this is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming to you on Power Talk, please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app and stream all of our live local programming, including the Jake Feinberg Show. We can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today, and it's a high honor to welcome back a guy, individual who, uh, total sonic expander on the bandstand, but also somebody who has incredible taste in music too he may not necessarily agree with that but every single album that he has engineered has some kind of weird esoteric sonic expanding ear stretching component to it and um he continues to do it in his own way uh dan healy welcome back to the jake feinberg show hey jake how you doing i'm doing great man it's great to hear your voice i uh did you catch that track coming in? Uh, yeah, I did. Why don't you fill me in a little bit? Uh, that was off an album uh, called uh, 50 Foot Hose, Cauldron. Oh, yeah, okay. All cl- right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he, I mean, Healy, I mean, where... <clears throat> I mean, the, where? How did you? It, it, you're listed as a as a producer and an engineer, and, and you did. Yes. Can you talk about? how you connected with these cats in this band? Because I, I mean, I only collect vinyl, but I tell you right now, this is, I've listened to the whole thing on YouTube this morning. It's one of the craziest mind bending albums and kind of was, I don't think there was anything like it out there. I, I mean, music concrete was going on on the East coast, you know, Moondog was out there doing sounds on the streets, but can you just talk about Cauldron and how that came together? Well, there's a guy named Corky Markeski. Yeah, I saw that. And, uh, and, and his partner, David Blossom. Uh, Corky is a, an electronic synthesizer uh, music freak. He was doing um, synthesizer music before there were synthesizers. He started out by tearing apart old radios and stuff and make getting them to squeal and uh, do you know what a, i guess you, you are, for for your listeners uh, what a theremin is you might not you might uh, need to describe that yeah a, a theremin was like the the very first uh, synthesizer that came out it came out in the late 20s it's, it's named after the guys theremin um uh, a uh it was the really the first synthesizer and you played it it had it was like a box and it had a, a rod antenna coming out of it like a like an a car antenna and you and and you could turn it on and it would squeal and as you moved your hand closer and farther away from this rod it would change the pitch and change the texture of the sound and that plus a couple of other knobs on it which let you scale it to different octaves and stuff you, you people be, learn how to play and I'll, I'll I'll liken it to this. Have you ever heard anybody play a bowed saw? Um, I 
you know, a handsaw that the the guy pulls in his lap and bends it and 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 bows it with a violin bow and plays melodies. Absolutely, yes. Okay, well, it's it has that kind of a sound to it. Okay, and that, and that kind of timber and 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 it's transitional from note to note is in that same, sort of same uh, that uh, same same uh, genre. I guess it is not really a good word, but. Um, the same t- timbers and stuff. As you bend it, it kind of continuously raises and lowers the pitch as you as you bend it and unbend it and stuff. So anyway, um, a, a theremin was the first electronic version of something like that, and it was the very first synthesizer. And as I say, it came out in I think 1927 is when uh, the first it, synthesizer. It, the it, first it, it made. Okay, I'm just off this album. Uh, Dan Healy, engineer, producer, 1968. Cork, Mar- uh, how do you say his last name again? Corky Markeski. Uh, I mean, this cat, audio generator box, composer, echolette, group member, microphone, oscillator, siren, speech, speaker, yeah. speaking part, theremin. There's the theremin right there. But um, how did you... How, how did I'll, you, I'll get to that in a second. Okay. Uh, so uh, <laughs> do you ever, have you ever heard of the gravity adjusters? Dude, it's Lee Charlton... Wait, hold on. The Gravity Adjusters Expansion Band? Yeah. Dude, I've done... It's sort of that same stuff. Lee Charlton sent me both copies on LP, vinyl, sealed. Uh, those are the greatest... Ap- that is exactly what I'm getting for. Were you were you part of the Gravity Adjusters? No, I wasn't, but I, was, I, I probably had some influence on them. How was that? Me and Mickey Hart. Mm. Um, uh, Mickey was the guy that turned me on to the Gravity Adjusters. But before that was Corky Markeski and the 50-Foot Hose and David Blossom. David Blossom, who's no longer living, was a guitar player and songwriter and a fat, wonderful cat. And uh, the two of them were partners. And then uh, Nancy Blossom, David's wife, was the girl that sings on that album. 50-Foot um, um, uh, Hose? Blues song. Yeah, on the 50-Foot Hose album. I can't say. I, uh, God bless the child. Oh, good. Billie Holiday. Yeah, I love child. Billie Holiday as a composer on this album. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, that's that's Nancy Blossom singing, uh, singing it. Oh. And at any rate, um, so I was. This was. I signed a one-year contract in 1967. I think it was 68, for uh, with Mercury Records. When and during that time, I produced Tracy Nelson and the Mother Earth Band. Mm-hmm. I did Sir Douglas Quintet. She's mm-hmm. about a mover. Mendocino, all of those songs. I did Michael Bloomfield. I did a lot of blues guys, Chicago older older Chicago blues guys. Uh, uh, I did uh, Wayne Talbert. Uh, um, I did uh, D- uh, Mac Rabinick. Um, I, I did uh, 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 that sort of whole genre of studio stuff. And they, those were all uh, signed to subsidiaries of Mercury Records, like Smash Records was a subsidiary of Mercury. So anyway, uh, so I signed a year contract to produce records for them. And during that time is when uh, Mercury Records signed Corky and David Blossom and w- as the 50-foot host to do an album. And they asked me if I would like to jump into it. And, of course, 
being a, a, a kind of a like-minded freak myself, I, I said, sure, let's see what we can do. So we went in and we recorded this at the, at the Columbus, Reco- Columbus Recording, which is um, in the Flatiron Building. And San Francisco has a Flatiron Building, like all the big cities that do. And it's on Columbus and Kearney. And, in, and it was owned by the Kingston Trio. Wow. And in the basement of this 10- or 12-story, I guess 12-story building, was a recording studio that the Kingston Trio recorded in, and it was actually a really great-sounding studio. It had some really great equipment for the audio files out there. It had a fully balanced Langevin console, and, uh, and uh, uh, the monitor speakers were 604s, and it was the first, play, the first studio in town to have an 8-track tape machine. It was a 3M 8-track. And uh, at any rate, so I recorded that, and all the stuff, most of the stuff I did for Mercury, I did in that studio, mainly because I liked the sound of the place. But at any rate, that's uh, how I got involved with Corky and the 50-foot hose. And I really had a great time with those guys. I mean, it was fantastic doing that. Was there anyone doing anything close to that uh before you know before the 50 foot hose because this one of the one of the genres is uh bizarro i've never heard of a of a of a, of a musical genre in that vein but i mean had were you how did i guess as as the engineer and producer how did you incorporate corky's the all the electronic sounds within uh when the when the guys were actually hitting it live well um i, I got a give Corky the credit mostly for, uh, for, for figuring out ways of incorporating it, although it, that was the task as the, uh, I wore two jackets, I wore the producer jacket and then I wore the engineer jacket on that, for that record. And as an engineer, I, 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 I was really challenged to, the, the, my challenge was to figure out how to, to sort of make it all meld, if you will, into something that, that, that represents what it is that they were trying to say. So I, I was really just trying to be, as an engineer, what you really are is you're a translator, among other things, of the musician or the artist to the audience. So as a translator, I kind of just developed ideas, and, and, and I brought a lot of my own equipment, and I built a lot of pieces of little, little interface stuff here and there that helped us get it all on tape and, and get it and record it. So it was... It was a, a, a definitely a team effort, and I, but I really, one of the things that got me was that Corky and the 50-foot hose concept wasn't just synthesizer music, because it, it was all, that's where the gravity adjusters aspect came into it, okay? Because <laughs> he beat on pots and pans and garbage can lids and stuff, yeah. uh, as well as, uh, as, as all of the electronic synthesis. So it was a kind of a combination of all of that stuff that made it uh, really unique and outstanding. So uh, it, it was um, it was about how to record all of this stuff and and sort of put it together in some kind of ensemble that that that, that at least he and I agreed was, was a, a facsimile of what it might want to be. Right. Well, you just said something interesting, and I, I really need you to being kind of a, a total neophyte when it comes to. Uh, technology p- component. You, you you talk about building these interfaces for recording it, for recording the sounds. What is what? Could you give an example of, of the kind of stuff? That well, you- for, 
one of the things is is that one of the very first things that I innovated is uh, what's called a direct box in the recording studio. Now, mm. a prior when I first began in studios, a direct box is, is a way to record a guitar or any musical instrument that has an audio output uh, directly into the console rather than going through a speaker and, a, and using a microphone. And it's called a, it was called a direct box in those days, and I, as far as I know, it still is. But one of the drawbacks of the direct box was that it taxed to, to use, for lack of, uh, to, 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 without getting into the minutiae of electronics, sure. it taxed the, the guitar pickups. And, and so it stripped away, it, it, uh, it, uh, it, it sucked off the highs and low, the high frequencies and the low frequencies. So you could plug your, your guitar into it, but it, didn't, it no longer sounded like your guitar because of, of the taxing of the weight of, the electronic weight of this direct box circuit. So well, I, uh, I was doing the charlatans. I was producing the charlatans. That's another band I did for Mercury. Well, we, have, no, we know that's a whole, listen, we only play the same song once, so that we, got, we got that later on. But the charlatans, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Um, uh, but um, 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 Richard Olson had this really rinky-dink uh, K- Kingston, I think it was, and one of those uh, Japanese basses. It was like one of those ones you got for forty-nine ninety-five, oh. <laughs> and it had these really. But he, for some, there was something about it he liked, and I must say, I, I, I kind of like the sound of it. Um, but uh, uh, it, when you plugged it into a direct box, you just lost the sound. It went, just took it away. Wait, this was a so, this was a Japanese-made bass. Uh, this was an yeah. Uh, I think it was called Kensington or Kingston or something. And like it wasn't that. like it, it, it didn't did it did it did you hold it like a Fender bass guitar? Or? Yeah, yeah. It was just a regular bass. I did. You know? It was more like a Hofner in that shape, uh, the kind of violin body, hollow body. But about halfway between a, a, a jazz bass size and a, and a Hofner size, mm-hmm. you know what a Hofner is, right? Well, I know what it's a rig- little teeny. What... Ba- the bass was a little teeny body. Right, right. That right. Paul McCartney used to play. Yeah, I think Percy Heath used to play one of those too. Well, maybe not. It was a probably. Little... Yeah, yeah. I dig. I dig. And anyway, um, they were notoriously cheap, and you could buy. And you always saw them hanging in hawk shop windows. Okay. And anyway, um, uh, so when I plugged it into uh, the the direct box that they had in the studio, it, it just sapped all of the tonality off of it. So I com- commissioned a guy named Carl Countryman to design me a, what's called a buffered direct box, and it later became the Countryman direct box, which is now world famous. But uh, he did that for me for. A, uh, for the Charlatan's album, so so that's an example of innovating something for the studio. I want so what it, what it did is it made a direct box. Uh, it was like the new version of a direct box, and then it was invisible to the pickups on the guitar. So you could plug a guitar or bass or, or in, into it, and 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 and, and not sap away the the tonalities and stuff of the pickup. So it was really it was a huge step in the right direction. And then something that was needed. So anyway, I used that in, uh, on the 50-foot hose. But I also did a couple of other things because Corky would bring some hacked-up half of an old radio or something that he did something to and got it to squeal and make some weird noise. And he'd want to record that. And so I would have to figure out some way of, 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 of extracting the, the electronic signal out of it and feeding it into the, into the 
record board, the mix console, so that I could record it onto the tape machine. And so I, I was perpetually um, jimmying and jerry-rigging some kind of piece of equipment so that we could get it to, to, to hook up to the console and we could record with it. So that's kind of what I meant about that. I did. We're talking to, talking to Dan Healy live on Power Talk here on the Jake Feinberg Show. I, th- this, this kept me up a little bit last night. I, I, I believe you know, commercial recorders... You told a riveting story about um, basically getting those opportunities to on the weekends to bring bands in. But I, I, I in between our last conversation and now, I, I was talking to uh, the fish, Barry Melton. Uh, he lives in Paris now. He quit his law practice and moved to Paris. And um, he, he was talking about this concept of, you know, folk music when you blend it with uh, well, psychedelics, and you take it, and once you leave the head of the tune, all of a sudden you're playing sort of, well, you're playing jazz. And he said all the cats that came out of, you know, whether it was Fish, whether, I mean, whether it was The, the, the Dead or, or, or Yorma or the Airplane, they were all folk musicians. The one cat... Pretty much, they came from the Berkeley folk, folk music scene, the, the one, coffee house Exactly. Scene. The one cat, the one cat who was literally a rocker, was John Cipollina, and I wanted you to talk, absolutely, and I wanted you to talk about this. I wanted you to talk about this, this triamp guitar setup, and this the, the first rig that I, I I'm going to go on record. I could, and I want you to correct it if it's wrong. The first rig, the first pedal board and guitar rig that you built was for John Cipollina. That is absolutely true. Break it down. That John Cipollina was for one thing. Uh, um, the, the most beloved friend I have had, mm. ever had in the world, okay? But also, he was the most fabulous, fantastic uh, artist and, and uh, conceptualist. He, uh, he, there was a whole side of him that did drawings and stuff. They were just outrageous stuff. <laughs> but uh, as a guitar player, he was as unconventional as, as you could possibly imagine. And for a long time, it, he, it almost made him an outcast. Until it was the ugly duckling story. Exactly. Right? <laughs> Until he grew up and, and he grew into his shoes, as Jerry Garcia would say, right. and uh, and became known as John Cipollina, the fabulous guitar player. But he always, I called him Batwang. Okay. Batwang. And Batwang. Okay. <laughs> and he had. I don't know if you see pictures of him as guitar, but he had his guitar. Um, um, he had bat wings. His his pick guard. He had special pick guard. He played the SG uh, 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 Gibson SG, mm-hmm. and uh, he had um, it, it was the the twenty two fret one, uh, uh, and uh, he had his new pick guards made for it in the shape of bat wings, and he just liked that. He was kind of, he was a kind of a long hair, really always dressed in black and leathers and stuff like that. He was sort of a Batman kind of a character, and he had all this bat stuff. And I, and I called him Batwang because you know what a, what a bat is, and you know what a wang is, don't sure, you? Sure, sure, absolutely. <laughs> I called him. So that, that was my, that was, that was our, 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 the ones who loved him and knew him called him Batwang. Let me just read. I want to read this from uh, from Mario. Uh, he's, sure. This was from our first and inter- second interview. He said. Uh, All right. He said, um, 
uh, John, my brother had the first uh, first triamp guitar setup, or you had a dedicated set of amps and speakers for each frequency range. For the low frequencies, Correct. he had two Standal Imperials, which for the time were extremely powerful. He had four 15-inch speakers and probably 800 watts for the low frequencies. He had a twin reverb on top of that with 12-inch speakers. That put out a couple hundred watts, and that was for his mid-range. For the high yeah. frequency, he had dual Shulman amplifier at the top, which was just the amp yeah. without speakers. It was hot-rided by none other than Dan Healy and added another couple hundred watts. That powered six Wurlitzer high-frequency drivers with trombone bells attached to them. Yes, that's They looked exactly like right. trumpet bells, and they were actually trombone bells. John was the first person to have a pedal board. All right, I, mean, I could go on and on and on. I'm just like, but when Mario told me this story, that was really, I realized that I'm like, Healy's first, I mean, his your first project, really. I mean, was that the first thing you created before the direct box? I mean, was that the, the first rig? Uh, no, I did other stuff. Uh, the first stuff I did was, actually, you, you know, the very first thing I did hmm. was Pigpen's Oregon. And Whoa. this was probably back in 1966, I would say. 65, maybe 65, end of 65, first part of 66. Uh, he had a B3. But there was, I don't really remember, but it, it was, it would never work right and, and it never sounded right and everything. So I would, I took his organ and I hot rotted it. And, and, but I, I, and I also, uh, um, redid all the cabling and redid the amplifier and the Leslie speaker and stuff like that so that it would, w was much more reliable and much more sturdy and, and stuff. And so, um, that, that was actually the first thing I did. And then, um, when I I told didn't I tell you the story about I, I lived in the houseboat next door to Quicksilver right we haven't we haven't really vetted that though but yeah I mean you can go there go ahead yeah all right and so when those guys found out that I I knew about electronics and at that time I was working at commercial recorders um, uh, and I knew about electronics and knew about um, uh, amplifiers and stuff like that. Uh, that's when they, that John was really the one that I got to know the best. Although I, I, I knew him from the Chord Lords and from high school days and stuff like that. I, I didn't really get to know him until later on, you know, when we got to really be really close friends. But uh, I, I, I started out just by lending a hand and fixing, you know, because like I said, um, in those days, nobody had any money. So if your amp broke, there was—you didn't have the money. I mean, if you broke a string, you, you would—you could be out of luck. <laughs> let alone your amp broke. So, yeah, right, um, uh, right, right. So I was—I was like, uh, "Hey, we'll get down to do it." So, uh, so I did it, I, and I enjoyed doing it, and it was, didn't bother me. I had a regular gig at the studio, and I was doing all right. And so I kind of, kind of got into it, sort of piecemeal in a way. But I, but I, I really got interested in doing it, and, and at the, by then I was starting to get hooked on the music, and, and more than hooked on the music, but hooked on the concept of what everybody, just like Barry Melton was talking about, um, the, hooked on the concept of what, when we were all somehow thrown together in, the, in 1963, 64, 65, around in there, a whole bunch of us from every known walk of life showed up 
and and we didn't weren't sure how we got there or why we were there but everybody's had at least the the ones of us that were involved in making the music had some kind of concept or music idea inside of us that we that we came there to, we came, we left wherever we were to go somewhere to exercise and and practice our 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 ideas our musical ideas and our artistic ideas and um when we all kind of somehow ran into each other we we sort of gradually realized that that there was something going on beyond just us individually being there but that people were people were shared ideas and and uh, and and it was worked to to help each other cultivate and develop the, the their dreams that they brought from home so to speak all right and so um th- th- when that began to happen the music began to meld between folk music and jazz and blues and um, rock and stuff and and, and 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 all these forms of music sort of coalesced into into i guess you would call psychedelic music it, again like Barry said when you sprinkle it with psychedelic drugs then what happens happens you know well and no so, I, I want to read this because I, this is what I, you that it's been echoing in my head over and over it's like the sa- you kept saying the sound we had in our heads is what we wanted to project out to the audience. And Melton, this is what Melton said. Melton, this is one of the things, he goes, psychedelics were legal in 66, and when you mix that with a little folk music, an idea of what jazz is, and you mix it with folk music, you have, in essence, an improvisational zone in rock. Okay, so there's the idea that, like, once you play a tune like My Funny Valentine, by the time you get to the middle of a song, you can't tell what it is necessarily, because you, you've dropped the presumption of structure. You know what you're playing, which helps, but it doesn't sound like the song you begin with. And so was it like organically saying, boy, you know, we really can't play jazz, but we can do, we can be, fo- we, I mean, even though this is putting Cipollina aside because he was not a folk guy. But when you mix the folk music and then go into the improvisational zone, is that the music that you're, that, is that the sound you were hearing in your head? I'd, I'd say that that was a, 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 a legitimate uh, characterization of it. Um, the, the, I mean, I, I can only, I only know what I heard in my head. I, I don't really know what anybody else hears in their head or heard in their. What head. did you hear but in your except head? Yeah. That, except that, mine. I've always been. I wound up being the, the sort of the translator. Okay. I, know. I like I, I think I told you the last time that I started out as a player, but I discovered that I had a knack, that, that, uh, that a, a very special gift of ability of hearing and, and sense of music and pitch, and, uh, and, and, and all, not only that, but the touch of all of the electronic equipment, the recording and microphones and speakers and turning knobs and all of that. So that, that was my gift. And so I music was sort of took a back seat uh, from the personally playing it and the front seat began uh, uh, occupying my time um, uh, sort of sort of helping all of my acquaintances and friends and stuff translate their what they heard in their heads so i i'm I, in a funny way i'm sort of a translator or, or acted as a sort of a translator and i so i would understand and and hear what they were hearing and i was the guy that could show them how to make it come out on a record or come out in an auditorium 
Okay, so that was my kind of, I, I would probably say that was my biggest role of that, of, of recording and of, of producing and, and mixing and stuff, was as, as a translator.
What was the sound in, in Dan Healy's head? You said you were a driving bass player. You loved Bill Evans. You loved Counterpoint. What was this? Because, I mean, Melton, Melton, I mean, I mean, you know, Melton songs, they don't, they're pretty, they're pretty staid. I mean, you know, he was a jug band cat, you know, I mean, and then he comes mm-hmm. up and it's like, but I know what he's getting at. And, and when you listen to a song like when the dead stretched out and with playing in the band, once you leave the form of the song, it could be, I mean, it, it's a, it's a kind of a psych psychedelic rock tune, but once you get in 13 minutes in, it sounds like, uh, I don't know, something out of the, the, some middle Eastern, you know, like you said, it could sound like tires rolling down the hill or it could sound like this blazing. In no, front. I didn't say tires rolling down the hill. Garbage cans, garbage, garbage cans, cans rolling, rolling down yeah. flights or, of stairs. Or, or it just b- explodes your brain because it's so powerful and it's way beyond any kind of. Well, yeah. I'll, okay. I'll answer that. What it is is uh, it's a fishing expedition. <laughs> you could you could start by characterizing it as that. Uh, in essence, when you're as you said, 13 minutes in, um, by then you, uh, as you pointed out, abandoned the, the 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 basic original structure, and now you're sort of fishing. Um, sometimes. It pays off. You stumble onto a concept or an idea, or somebody will play a group of notes that will inspire you, and then you'll pick up and add to it. And sometimes it re- it takes off and really goes somewhere. And other times it it, it falls flat on its face because it, it the issue wasn't to make it work every time. The issue was to get off into free space and let what develops develop. Okay, so that's really, and and in that sense, I don't I don't think that anybody that has ever come up with anything spontaneously creative uh, would would have to say that they they were intending to do it. It's it's the kind of thing that it's the unintended consequences it is what we were looking for. It's the what might happen if you took all of the reins off. Okay, so when you get out there into that song, what you're really doing is you're taking the reins off and you're letting it run wild and run free and see uh, if you can uh, capture some of it or see if any of it inspires you or, or grabs a part of you that, that, that you recognize that you can jump on and, 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 and develop some uh, ideas with. You know, um, no, the, the, you, you mentioned, I want to just go back and, and, and make sure that we get this on the record. Um, can you delineate between, uh, like, I realized that, it, like, you know, eventually Quicksilver and the Dead, they lived in houses or they lived pretty close to each other. They played cowboys and Indians together. People were shooting, you know, having a ball. But uh, Jerry was a bluegrass guy. What separated Chipolina from every other cat. I mean, he played, he could play surf music. He could play rock. He, he was not cut from the folk cloth. So what made him? No, the- uh, Carl Perkins. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I can't say John's patron saint. Uh, my brain is dead right now. Guitar player. Oh man, help me out here. Uh, no, just um, I mean, it'll, it'll come. It'll. It's a stream of consciousness. So uh, uh, it was like Lowell Folsom. Uh, he. Hmm? Lowell Folsom. No, no, a 50s rocker, a 50s rock and roll guitar It's player. not really my bag. Played a Dan Electro guitar. It's just not my bag. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll say it in a minute. Yeah. Um, he, John was a rocker. I mean, when, John was the first one I know of in this whole scene to be in a band. And that was back in, like, 
uh, early 60s. Was it the Chord Lords? He was in the Chord Lords. The Chord Lords. Unbelievable. Yeah, a band called the Chord Lords. There's pictures of him floating around. <laughs> and when he was uh, when he had straight, it was short, a crew cut. Oh, man. If you can imagine John Cipollina with a crew cut. And wearing a ba- band, uh, uh, you know, in those days, do you know what band uniforms are? Of course you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In those days... Uh, bands, uh, everybody in the band had the same sport coat and the same blazer. We called them blazers. You wore the same slacks, the same shoes, usually white buck shoes, and uh, a blue slacks and a, and a, and a light-colored blazer, some, mostly, usually white or cream-colored blazer or ye- light yellow, uh, which is a sp- form of a sport coat. And everybody in the band dressed the same. There's pictures of the Beatles from that era, Okay all dressing the same. Anyway, Absolutely. So John was in the Chord Lords, and that was the kind of band that was. And they played, well, I used to go to the Santa Venetia Armory, and then there was an, also a, a hall in Santa Venetia. Santa Venetia is a little town uh, 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 that's on the side of San Rafael in, in Marin County. And uh, 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 there was a, a hall that was, I can't remember, it was a, like, it was a fr- 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 fraternal hall. It wasn't Elks, it was like maybe IDES Hall or one of those fraternal organizations. And, uh, and they had gigs there. And, and, and when the first time I saw John play was at, at that, that hall in, in Santa Venetia. And, uh, and then, you know, and he had, uh, I forget what kind of guitar he had. He had a, 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 a Fender amp. I think it was, I think it was like a, a, one of those old blonde uh, Fender Deluxes or something like that that he was playing through. And uh, he, so he was a rocker. Um, geez, I wish I could say the name of his patron saint. All right, I'm gonna look. Um, it, I'm gonna look it up for you. But he, but I mean, he, he's he, known known as a guitar player, and he played a guitar called the Dan Electro. You know what that is? Mm. It's a cheap Sears Roebuck guitar. Okay, <laughs> made out of masonite, and 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 it has a characteristically incredible um, uh, the sound that you hear um, in the. Um, the uh, the good bad and the ugly the Clint Eastwood movie sure, sure. and and, uh, and what is the what's the song go the something of gold ecstasy of gold it's the guitar sound in that song it's uh, it had its a its own characteristic sound and when you hear it you, you once you recognize what the sound of a Dan Electro is you'll you'll be able to pick it out anytime any place you hear it anyway um, that's the guitar that's what John had was it and, li- well, by the uh, way was it was his was his uh, one of the influences Link Ray? That's who I'm saying. Thank you Link very Ray. much. Good. We're, yeah, we're done with Ray. that. Okay, Link Ray. I apologize for being brain dead. Oh, please, you're, you're cooking, man. <laughs> so anyway, John. So John was unique. He was his own guy. I mean, he he had he he heard his version of it, you know, which we used to call a snakes and spiders and snakes. But uh, that's another another uh, that's another insider one. Um, uh, Garcia used to, we used to call him insect fear. Insect what? Insect what? Insect, insect fear. The music you're making is so weird it'll scare insects. (laughs) (laughs) No, because I, I, I I mean, this is, I mean, I have to believe that, um, there was something also about Melton saying that, and this is pre-Warlocks, he said John would take it somewhat, he was so unpredictable and he'd play a song differently every time. And I'm wondering yeah. how, how much influence he had on Garcia in that respect. I don't know. I think Garcia had his own, uh, he had his own snakes and worms. Yeah, really? Uh, yeah. I don't know that they, I mean, 
it's hard to say because it was all happening simultaneously at that point, and and it's hard to say who influenced who. It's my best guess and my best reckoning that besides what happened on the spot, most all of us were influenced by generations before us and, and various music and musicians that we that were our peers growing up okay i would say that's probably the major contributor so the bluegrass people had the doc watson generation before them the jazz had all the jazz greats from the 50s before them and the rockers had all the rockers from the 50s link ray and those kind of people so uh, I, I i i would think that as far as us influencing each other, I, I think we were pretty much fully occupied just trying to manage what we were doing. You got to remember, we were all just learning how to play. Okay. Sure. So it, we were growing with uh, with our music. I regret not calling you an hour before because uh, I I wanted to get my hands on some of this studio work with uh, Treese and Giannini, um, but the 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 thing is. Did you? I just talked to Gar- David Garibaldi last night. He's he's going to track down Pete Senior for me. But did you? Did, did you first? How did you first connect with Giannini? It, it, was it seeing him with the Escovito brothers? It was the the spiders. The spiders. So then, but I mean, yeah. you, you said that he's from that East Bay. The yeah, he, he was playing with the Escovito. He's an East Bay Grease guy. East Bay Grease. There you go. But yeah. But did you? Did you? Uh, did you venture over there to play? I mean, because you were. I mean, you. you... Yeah, because Richard Treese lived over there. Right. And Richard right. Treese. I met Richard Treese. Do you know who Johnny Draper is? No. Okay. Uh, there, uh, Johnny Draper is this Rusty Draper's son. You know who Rusty Draper is? He's a famous fifties. Uh, he's our my parents' generation. Um, uh, country and western country singer and and songwriter and stuff. He had a song called Nightlife. Sure. Oh, the nightlife ain't no good life, but it's my life. That song. Um, uh, he uh, he was uh, his son was Johnny Draper. That was Rusty Draper. He was a fan. he played in Vegas and he he was like a cabaret lounge act guy, a, a big time uh, Reno, Vegas, and all across the country. Anyway, so um, J- Johnny Draper was one of the bands that had uh, the. Uh, that was when I started at Commercial Recorders. Uh, the when when I, to, I told the story about on the weekends I got the gig of doing demo tapes. Absolutely. Well, Johnny Absolutely. Draper's band was one of the, the 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 groups that a guy named Herb Handler, that was a talent scout for Capitol Records, brought that the, the, the Cheaters was the name of their band. Okay, uh, Johnny Draper was called the Cheaters, and they, that was another band that wore uh, outfits, costumes. They all dressed the same. Anyway, Richard Treese was the guitar player. Okay, and I got to know Richard, and I got to know Johnny too, for that matter. But I uh, got to know Richard really well, and then so Richard and and I, uh, so I was playing bass, Richard was playing guitar. We needed a drummer, and we found Butch, and and Richard knew Butch from the East Bay, from the East Bay days, and and from the. Uh, the spiders and 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 all of those guys over there. So we went at one time. We one day finally we just got up enough nerve. We went to Butch and we said we want we we are taking you. You're coming with us. And he said okay. And we formed the bicycle. I just if you could again going back to the voice the, the music the sounds that were in your head uh, when you were 
the tragic time when he passed away, but you were down at the uh, uh, Whiskey A Go Go or yeah, Whiskey A Go Go. You said you were channeling. You said you guys were getting into jazz. What What does that mean in, for the for the for the Healy Trees for the bicycle? What What What, what did that jazz sound like? Well, um, the bicycle had like kind of three factions, as all bands had in those days. Um, the Stephen Fisk uh, was the lead singer, and and he also wrote his own songs. And he was kind of a uh, his influence. He came from he was a New York City boy, mm-hmm. and and he grew up in the sort of cabaret New York City. So his songs tended to be like um in in that in that in that sort of uh, cabaret vein and so he wrote not really folk songs but they were kind of ballady songs um um but they weren't necessarily to folk rhythms they were they were to 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 more swing rhythms and stuff like that and then um Alan Rose was our keyboard player he played a B3 he was a, a kind of a blues influence guy but he also played jazz. He jazz and blues was his thing. And Richard was, uh, Richard, believe it or not, Richard Treese had a, a lot of, of gospel background. Really? Okay. Yeah. And he's, he was really played gospel music. And Butch Giannini could just play anything. Okay. <laughs> and, and he could nail it. And so, and I was game. I, I, I wanted to, my, what I heard, I wanted to, to pull together arrangements and make a, a really, a, a really tight band and really well rehearsed and, and really, I wanted us to be able to command whatever. I didn't, I wasn't so concerned with the nature of our music, but as I was about the, of, of, of how well it was, it was, uh, constructed and how well it was executed and performed and stuff so i wanted to i wanted to excel in that area of being able to if you'll pardon the phrase kick ass okay mm-hmm. and so um that, that so when we put it all together we, we did that now we started doing uh, about a third of the stuff we did were cover tunes and then and two-thirds were songs that we had various ones of us had written ourselves Richard wrote some of them. I wrote some of them. Uh, Alan wrote some of them, uh, and Stephen Fisk wrote some of them. But w- w- I, when we, towards the end, when we would be jamming, it would start getting into this jazz groove. And I, I, Butch, for one thing, would, would probably was one of the inspira- inspirators, uh, if that's a word. And but <laughs> Richard picked right up on it too. Wow. And and and, wow. and I was more than game for it and alan was really game for it so we it would just go off into these jazz spaces and i really i have very little tape of us doing it but there's a couple of songs that we have uh that, that i that managed to survive on you gotta remember I, I know i reiterate this over and over again but there just wasn't tape recorders in those but days. you do Nobody had there's something equipment. there to at least get my i got it my ears i guess also the other thing i know you wanted to be, have a uh, a really good tight kick-ass uh, group that you go up there and have these good sets and and they weren't sloppy and and that but I mean were like at that point were you well, smoke, I wanted smoking I wanted smoking music I didn't want to be dangling around I wanted a smoking you, you wanted know? you wanted it but, to burn you want but I'm saying we're, who like at that time was it who were the cats you weren't playing upright so I mean who were the cats that you were getting off on 
uh, base wise, or were you just your own person? Were you were you creating space? I mean, you know, I'm thinking about. I mean, you were a pocket bass player. I, I'm I'm just anal- being. My friends always. I, I think if if anybody, I I, I kind of in, I kind of went, wanted to be on my own, so I I tried not to be too influenced by other people's playing. But if I was, it would be I was mo- mostly influenced by. Um, uh, uh, by by the the sort of Nashville sound and, and there's an early Nashville sound and the Texas swing sound and stuff like that. I like that kind of bass playing. I liked I liked um, I liked a lot of the uh, the cabaret stuff from the 50s. Uh, I was impressed by that kind of bass playing, but that was mostly acoustic bass, and and so I I did my own version of translating it to electric bass. And uh, so I, 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 you know, I, I, I kind of tried to draw from all the music I had heard, and 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 at the same time overlay that over the music that we were playing. I'll give you an example. There's a bit of a piece of a, a tape. Uh, it's not complete. A bit of a piece of a, of a tape. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love uh, that it. Uh, of us of the bicycle playing some jazz. Oh. Uh, there in those days, uh, one of the other things that was happening was Indian music. Uh, mm-hmm. The uh, the Sitar and and uh, uh, all, uh, tabla and baya and all of those guys. The the East Indian influence was was there was a lot of that going around. A lot of people listened to sitar music and burnt incense in those days. Okay, so there there's a one called the the something raga that we used to play. The eighty minute the eighty like, minute raga Ali Akbar Khan. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. We had our own version of the, it. Was called the something wrong. Are you kidding and it was me? And some this, funny name. The bicycle, like the, the, bicycle jazz. Yes. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh my god. It was god. called. Uh, it might have been jazz raga. Jazz. And <laughs> so we started with the uh, the the sort of atonal um, drone mm. of 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 a of a You know what a sarod is. Absolutely. Right? Or tambora. Does the drone come from a tambora or a sarod? Both. Either. Okay. Both. Yeah, I dig. Um, and. Uh, and and then, but then it had a jazz rhythm to it, and so we started on that, and it would go off into this jazz. So it was just like jazz Indian music, and it was really far out, you know. <sighs> so there's awesome. an example right there. Somewhere I have like the t- it's one of those ones that the, the roadies were running the uh, the tape machine, and of course they were always busy playing grab ass of some chick, so they'd f- forget, and the tape would run out, and the, oh. and the song would be over, and, the, and 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 no one changed the tape and stuff. So we lost a lot of music because it was again un- not organized, you know, and they weren't professionals, and they weren't expected to be professionals. But at any rate, there's a so so when I say there's a piece of it, it's like whatever there was before the tape ran out. And that is an example, but unfortunately, there is precious too little of of, of those kind of influences uh, of us. Uh, you do have. You, you said you did have uh, some studio work that was a little more tight. I do have some studio stuff. Yeah. Just be great to hear Giannini on the trap set. I, you know, we got a game on this program again called Name That Voice. I'm going to put this in for you, and then uh, we'll come back and break it down. All right. About uh, about the same time, uh, the band I, I started, the Brokes with uh, Rick Campbell and, and Eddie Rodriguez and Bill Winterton had just broken up and Gary Duncan was had come into that band. Uh, so him and I just kind of, we tried out L.A. and then we, we knew uh, Chris Brooks in Frisco. So she let us move in for a while. She knew John and David, or uh, John and Jim Murray, rather. And David came in after he got out of jail. 
but uh, yeah, that's yeah. We just moved up here and, and just haven't done a good time. I wanted. Who is that voice? I know, I know it, and I can't say it because I, 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 I don't. He gave you a lot of clues there, Healy. That was that was. I know the mercurial drummer Greg Elmore. Oh, Greg. Okay, yeah. You know, but Lumo. <laughs> Lumo. Lumo, that was his nickname, Lumo. How, the question is this. L-U-M-O. How, how can, you, can you talk about, with Quicksilver, um, what it was like to work sound for them, uh, if you did, in a live setting, as opposed to getting it into the studio? How did you work with them making those seminal some of those again some of those quicksilver albums are live live recordings but can you just talk about the the, the difference between you know getting the sound right in a, in a hall versus actually getting them to lock in in the studio okay here's how that works and and, and it isn't just quicksilver it kind of works generally speaking okay. um if you're a record producer uh, and or recording engineer and you work with a band in the studio and you establish um, what everybody sounds like and what you what we're, you were striving for and establish a sound. Um, it's if you know what you're doing and you understand the, 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 the instruments you're playing on, meaning the sound equipment instruments, then it's easy to translate it into a live performance. And or it's easy to translate a live performance. You can go back and forth from live to studio and studio to live because once you understand what is try, is it being said musically, then the rest is just being able to to bring it out through the instruments that you have at hand. So it's not, I, I know people like to think that there's a lot of hocus-pocus involved in it, and I hate to, to be the bearer of boring news, but the truth is, is if you understand the music and you understand your instruments, you can go back and forth fairly easily. Was there, I mean, can you talk like uh, a particular session, at least early on, when uh, when this became... A realization for you? I mean, was it something you picked up on right away? Well, it's something I understood right away. Whether or not I was able to deliver it is another story, because I, too, was learning my instruments, okay? So, and not only that, but in those days, the equipment was really crude by today's standards, and not only was it really crude, it was ch rapidly changing because uh, older technology was being abandoned in lieu of, of newer ideas and newer concepts. So there was a continuous shift of, of what you had to work with, and sometimes you would re you would be some one in one place, and you would revert back to some antique equipment that you had to try to make sound good. And then the next time you'd have some something fairly decent. But um, learning the process and learning learning what to expect and learning how to to bring out of of, of this equipment what it is you're trying to. To, to, to achieve is really the crux of what you're doing. It's, it's the, center. the center of it is, is, is understanding how to, to, to take what you're hearing and what you have agreed with the, all the musicians that we, we are collectively hearing and see if you can make it come out and filtered through all of, that, all of the, the piles of junk on the stage and have the audience go, oh, yeah, I got you, you know? So... Um, and that's really what you're doing is you're uh, you're 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 again translating and and translating is a big word when you think about what all is involved in translating it's a small word 
and, and, and as itself, but when it, what it entails is a huge word. Would you would you set? I mean, well, actually, the other. I mean, you talk about the dead or Quicksilver. Those guys were. I mean, I think that a lot of them th- thought that they kind of could do everything. So, did you have to actually put them back in their place at a certain point to say you don't? Th- this is my my job. Like, you, you just be the musician. Uh, yeah, but I think that goes on everywhere, and and that's another that gets into the politics of it, which is, you know, that's a whole story all by itself. But the truth is, is that I think really most of it is just in, motivated by enthusiasm. Okay, you know, people wanting wanting to do good and wanting it to be good and wanting to strive and excel and stuff. So, you know, I, I, there are times when I've, uh, I I I've told Jerry Garcia, you play, I mix. Okay. Hmm. I've to, I've had it, and I've told him that a number of times, and he understood that though. He I never really had that problem with him, um, but there were times in other musicians who who you I'll tell you what it is. It's like every other part of life. The the ones that really were serious and into doing what they're doing aren't the ones that give you trouble. It's the 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 the, the beginners or the punks or the know-it-alls <laughs> that get in your face i mean it's like it's like all parts of life you know the real deal don't fuck with you because they they know better right so and and i i'd say that that's a, a fair answer to it and in in the times when i did, would come to grips with some of them a largely had to do with enthusiasm okay so you know just wanting to wanting it to be right you know and also you got to remember that a lot of players playing playing is very personal and when you're in a studio and I'm I'm on the other side of the glass and I'm yapping at you because your guitar's out of tune or I don't like the way you're singing or you're you know or something like that, then you have to understand that um, that's horrendously intimidating. So I ha- I have had to learn a, a, a serious lesson of bedside manner, so to speak, because my, what I want to do is get the best out, and a, I want to enable the musician. I don't want to intimidate the musician. I want to get them to do their best and get them to feel the, good about delivering their most interpersonal self, and you don't do that by ridiculing and bombarding people. You do it by coaxing them and stuff. So um, it's important to know that when you're when you're producing, particularly in the studio, live it's not so much because live once you're on the stage, you know, once you pull the trigger, it's on its way. You know, so there's not I can't yell at anybody too much uh, live, but in the studio, yeah, you, you, there's a certain part of you that has to be a music cop, you know, and that's just. But at the same time, anybody that really understands it knows that it's for their own good that you're doing it. Because if I let you play out of tune, you play the best track you ever played, and one string was out of tune, then you're you're gonna have to do. You'll lose what you've done. So it's important to have somebody to produce you. I I can't perform when I get on the microphone side of the glass in the studio i can't do it without somebody standing on in the control room side telling me what to do because of so many years of understanding that when you're out there you're you're you close your eyes you have a pair of earphones on and there's a whole world out there you have no idea you talk about vertigo you're lost right i mean you know i mean you're in you're in uh, in you're in space and so it's to have someone tether you is is a more than welcome experience okay did you did you learn from I just I'm curious about your philosophy if you 
would mic if your philosophy was always about micing today there's so many mics and you can mic every single instrument but before were you were you always somebody who mic'd the room instead of micing individuals i mean would you bring them into the room and see who needed more bass or more treble or more guitar before you would mic it I'm not sure exactly what you're. I'm not sure exactly how you're. What you're saying. Well, like like the like John Mello or Melo, the the old head engineer at Chess Cadet. You know, the older they would they would set up a room full of musicians. They'd see who needed more bass or more treble in their guitar amp, and they did it to sound great in the room. And then they would mic the room instead of miking the individuals. That's the way they heard. Well, okay, okay, I got you. Yeah, uh, here's there, that. There's that's a split. Uh, answer there, yeah. <laughs> because um, and the reason why no, and, and the reason why is that when you're recording ensemble, it's that's that's the right approach. But when you're doing tracks at a time, then what you're really doing is you're optimizing the individual sound of an instrument. So, and a lot of studio recording isn't ensemble. Uh, a lot of it is uh, you lay down the bass and the drums, or, or you lay down a rhythm track. Rhythm guitar with with a with the drums or with the bass, and so when you're doing that, it you're not listening to the room, you're listening to the sound of the instruments. So because you're going to lay on m many other instruments and voices and stuff. So when you're compiling it from that point of view, it doesn't really matter what what the ensemble sounds like because there really isn't an ensemble other than a synthetic one that you've created, but. You do have to pay attention to that because if you do one track at a time, then when you go to put them all together, if there's such a difference in the in the uh, ambience, if you if you will, of 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 the different tracks, then you go to put it together and it's like, wait, this doesn't really fit. So it's it's a becomes a portrait portrait with uh, with uh, um, un, unblended colors and stuff. So. You have to you have to have a, a sort of a, an end picture in your mind of where you're headed with all of this when you do an individual tracks. When you do an ensemble, then that adage holds true. You want the room to sound good because the better the room sounds, the better everybody plays. Talking to Dan Healy here on the Jake Feinberg show. Um, I just is there. I was always curious about this actually. Trying to get a definitive answer is I've not been able to, to actually get it. In uh, uh, 1982, uh, Phil and Jerry switched sides on stage. And then soon after that, Phil came up with a six-string bass. And I wanted to know uh, why they switched sides on stage. Someone, Phil said he couldn't hear the drummers, but why did they switch sides on stage? And how, if anything, did that affect the way... That you had to set up the mic uh, system in the live context. I think the reason why they switched places is somebody didn't want to be by somebody else. Ew! I don't like that person. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, I mean, I mean <laughs> also, did Phil? I mean, did he have a hearing loss or something? I mean, I'm trying. It, it didn't see the. But that well, point. we all had hearing loss, but I don't <laughs> think that's really that what motivated. No, I, I think it really had to do with on stage ambience and 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 where you feel that you can hear the best. Um, maybe he wanted to be closer to one drummer than another or something like that, or maybe he wanted to hear it hear it from a different aspect. I mean, that's the kind of thing you have to ask him about. Actually, the truth is is that the traded places 
place trading happened three or four times in the Grateful Dead. And so um, really? it, it kind of really? depends on, on what era. And it had to do really with onstage ambience and how you feel the blend is uh, overlaid with your uh, intentions of how you're playing and how you want to deliver your music. So it, it comes down to the nuts and bolts of the practicality of making it work. All right, there is. It really isn't any. There is isn't any real big mystery to it. it it's pretty straight. And what was the other half year? The well, the other thing was that in 1983 he came. He had a four string bass. Obviously, that's what it is. Oh yeah, six string bass. It just he did it for for to, for a broader playing field. All right, more to do. You can go lower and you can go higher. Go lower? Was that because Garcia was it was able to go lower? And go, I mean, I'm just trying to figure no, out. No, it out. just was. No, it just had to do with being a big, a a a, a more, a, a, a more expansive bass player. Right. The again, there's no real. It, it isn't. It, it, try not to look at it as in terms of one person versus another. It's more individual endeavor. Okay. Sure. No, I mean, I, I mean, at that time, it's my favorite era of the debt by far. I mean, it was it, they were still I mean, essentially, I also that was my question is that you were like, was there a, dif a discernible difference in how you would set up uh, miking in like, you know, uh, not really. By then, I, I, I had I had achieved enough knowledge. I had enough experience under my belt that I, you could throw anything at me. I was ready for it. Uh, again, this reverts back to your little uh, um, um, proposition about the ensemble in the studio. It's, the ensemble on the stage is, is probably more important than the ensemble in the studio because, in fact, all the music takes place ensemble on stage and live. Okay, so... Because of that, that the, the the blend on the stage is is way more vitally important than in the studio. You can always change the mix in your earphones and stuff. And uh, and on the stage, it is what it is. So so there's the place where you really need to exercise the blend. And and then as you say, I, keep, I hate to keep using the word ensemble, but it's what it is. Um, um, and so when I uh, as as it, when things change on the stage I, I just adapt to it um as i said because by then i uh, you could throw any curve at me and 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 i would i would just i i would i would arise to the the bring it back to the level of where it belongs they uh they, this cuz they by in 83 they had uh you know you went to you were still going to colleges and uh playing sheds and it, you know obviously touch of gray had not really exploded and and i'm just trying to figure out ultimately and it might seem very obvious to you and there are some epic pictures of you with them but was it just like you were getting annoyed seeing like fifteen thousand uh newman microphones in front of the soundboard because i mean you listen to some of the front, <laughs> front of board stuff from before you instituted the taper section and it is like in front of you. It's it's in front of the speakers. You yeah, 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 yeah. I got all that. Listen, let me tell you something. Uh, I I was had mixed emotions about that, and that's that's a, another long story that had to do with division amongst us as as uh, as a as a group as a band. Okay, some of some band members bought into that record company bullshit about if you let people record you live, then then you they won't buy your records, which is 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 pure and utter 
bullshit. Bullshit, yeah. Um, and, the, and the other one, but 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 there was a serious problem with all the microphones, and that, and you understand that I'm basically a taper at heart, so I, I you know my sympathies lied in that area. However, um, there's there's a point at which you can become too maniacal about any of that stuff, and there were people that that pushed kids out of their seats who had stood in line for 12 hours to get a ticket uh, and uh, saying, I need to put my microphones here, and beat up, slapped people, and hit people for talking around their microphones and stuff. So when it gets down to that, it's like, wait a minute, man, you've gone way over the line. So that's when, and I was always under the pressure from some various faction, either a promoter or a band member or some whining nitwit, uh, uh, to end the tapers. Well, there's no way to end the tapers. We tried it for a while, and all that happened is people hid their tapes, microphones under their jackets, and the quality of the tapes sucked. But there's still just as many of them out there. So that, that there was no such thing as ending it, and that's why I, that's when I created the taper section behind me at the mix board. And if you ha- were in the taper, designated taper section, you had taper rights. If you were caught outside of that section, you had no rights, and you were subject to any anything I decided to meet out. Okay, so that's the way I de- dealt with it. Because at one point, the band said to me. Do something about this. You got to deal with this, and so that's what I did. I created the taper section because I knew that there was no way to stop it, and I and I also disag- I couldn't. I did not like the the tapers badgering the the concert goers. So I I thought that up, and that was my solution. Some people applaud me for it. Some people add add me to their add that to their list of their grievances with me so no I, I, I there are yeah well there are no grievances and 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 I just I, I think <laughs> you'd I, be surprised my friend yo but um this so how in I found these records in a, a tattered condition but I've interviewed uh uh all the the Vince Delgado this this jazzy jazzier plus Ali Jihad yeah. racy with Healy you were recording out of a church with those cats? Yeah. And so, I mean, that that seems to be and out of a truck, really. That seems like it would be a wholly different kind of uh, recording experience than than doing a... a uh, yeah, yes and no. I mean, uh, when, when I recorded live, uh, the approach that I used was not really strictly studio but it wasn't strictly live either because you wanted to the, the goal is to be able to sort stuff out after the fact in the in the studio when you're mixing it down so it was in your it would be in my best interest to get as much isolation from instrument to instrument so that was a consideration um but at the same time uh there's the whole overall sound so the, the i think the single most important or most significant dilemma I found myself in when I was recording live was uh, I couldn't mix live sound and, and also be in the recording truck at the same time. And if the if the sound, live sound wasn't good, the band didn't play well, and if the band didn't play well, then my recording efforts were wasted. So that was perpetually a, a problem. Then I wound up solving it by letting other people do the recording. I would set it up and establish it, and then the rest was just get it on tape, and I would go out and, con- and, and mix the room because 
I wanted the band to, to sound good, and I wanted it to, the whole thing to sound good, and the audience to light up, and the, and the band to, 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 to be able to feed back and, and bounce back off of the audience's, uh, the fun that the audience is having. And that makes the magic that makes a live recording work. So it was important to have the live sound. The most important thing was to have the live sound good. And so and that's, that's what I wound up dis- discovering when I did live recording, okay? You can see that it's true. 
ensemble in the studio were like with blues for Allah, things like that. Did you have uh, just the the rhythm section come in and record, or with with the, with that group were they all together? The whole band played the basic tracks, what we, what we would call the basic tracks. So it would be a drums, bass, guitar, and 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 probably not singing. Um, usually we'd learn the song and just play the. the we'd play the song, uh, and then then you'd overlay all the the instruments that you want to add to it and to make the arrangement come out, and then and you would do all the vocals and stuff. And that way you'd have individual control over all of that stuff, and not only that, but you'd have the opportunity to do it over again. If there's too much leakage of, of, of vocal on a drum tr- overhead drum mic, then you can't really sing it over again without that leakage getting in there. So you've you got to be mindful of all of that kind of stuff. So we did it, we did it kind of ba- what we called basic tracks, and then we did overdubs. I'm trying to think of what I was going to say something else there too, but it somehow got did, away. Did from you? Me. I was going to say, you know, I, 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 with 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 some of with some of Jerry's solo albums, I, 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 lo- I, you know, Healy, you clearly were like, you know, on the cusp of of engineering and recording in the San Francisco area. I was wondering if there was a definitive difference. Not that's the wrong way to say it. The slick. LA scene. You would go down to LA to to cut those Gar- uh, solo Garcia albums because there was a lot of studio cats like that were on those albums. I mean, even Run for the Roses. It says you played guitar on that, and I'm just trying. I'm like, yeah, I did. Was you did play guitar on that? Yeah. I mean, I I I, I, I don't think that's even on the back of the record. Uh, I, I mean, th- this is that's like a beyond me. But I'm saying. Did you? What was your vibe when you went to L.A.? Because I, I mean, as far as being an engineer there, did, were there cats there that you admired? Uh, I mean, I've inter- absolutely, absolutely. There were there were peers uh, that, and engineers, mixers, and stuff. The guys who I really respected and, and thought the world of that, that that were doing really great work. I mean, I never really, I never really thought of myself as. I don't know how to say this, but I, I never really looked back that much. Uh, when I was doing it, I, it was sort of for the moment, and, and that might have been a, a remiss uh, on my part, but I, I never really considered, uh, I was, wasn't that self-conscious uh, uh, of, of what I was doing. Or, uh, I was really in, uh, um, impressed by what, other, what I saw outside of myself. So I never really thought of myself as... as 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 a, a, not, a, a notable person in the industry, you know, and it wasn't really, I mean, I still don't to this day to a degree, although I know it's not true, but you know, so but I and when I went to L.A. to record, um, I was pretty much in charge of what I was doing, so people were were catering to me as much as as anything else, so I I didn't. I, I didn't. Re, I wasn't really or exposed that much to the the sort of LA way of doing things. Even though, don't misunderstand me. I have no. I, I, it's not a value judgment or anything. No, it just no. didn't happen. You know, like, I, I was like, who, totally respectful of of of, all, of everybody and what was going on. Who 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 were the like Val Garay? Who were some of the guys you got you liked? Yeah, yeah. Those he, he's one of them. Um, uh, Oh, geez, I can't think of any names right now. Okay. Um, yeah. uh, no, I was just I was curious. Russ I, Gary. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, uh, uh, you know, gee, I, 
I'd have to, that, that's one, that's the kind of thing that has to come out over time, because I, you know, again, I'm not real good at blurting out names and stuff. But yeah, there were, there were, there were a lot of guys. Um, the first person that impressed me was Bill Putnam, who was Mr. Universal Audio, United Audio. Wow. Okay. Wow. He's the, and when I was, the very first record I ever made, I, there were no, when you co- cut it to disc, there were no stereo mastering lays in, in the Bay Area. So you had to go to L.A. You had to take your master, get on an airplane, take your, your two track, your two reels, one for each side of the record, go down to L.A. and, and master your record. And, the, and, and um, Bill Putnam had a mastering plant. And uh, among other things, the, the UA consoles and stuff. I mean, he, he was in my parents' generation. And he was the first older guy to really take me under his wings and say, here, come here, let me show you some shit. And uh, he took me in the studio and taught me how to master and taught me, not that I, don't misunderstand me, not that I'm any kind of an authority on it, but I mean, he taught me, he familiarized me, I'll say it, with the process of, of mastering records and how to get what I wanted, what, what the limitations are, what to watch out for, the traps and the pitfalls and the advantages and so on and so forth. And he was just an absolute master at that, and he was as good as a father to me, okay? So, you know, if, if I ever, any time I ever have a chance, uh, I always like to, 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 to thank him um, for, for his kindness and goodness. One final question for you in, a, in set two here with Dan Healy and... Uh... I just feel like we're just getting going here, but uh, when 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 uh, I'd really like you to take us through this uh, this experience for you. Um, I had a chance to interview um, uh, Bill Cutler, and he told a story about uh, John being sent early to Egypt with all the the gear, and when they got there, the authorities there, whoever was there, had him disassemble everything. And uh, then he had to put it all back together, and there wasn't exactly like an Ace Hardware around uh, for, di- for, for for different. And so I'd like I really and and ultimately, apparently, the, uh, Keith's piano was out of tune, so that's why the tapes were never really released. But I'm just thinking to myself, okay, I know I, I always talk to the to the to the African jazzers about going to the motherland. Most people think civilization started with the Greeks and the Romans, but it started in, in the motherland. And I'm like, I don't think Healy was necessarily in the month the closest you probably ever got was egypt i could be wrong but if you could please paint the picture of that experience and how did you figure out to get the sound from where they were playing well first of all you got to understand that the the scope and magnitude of being there and the event (laughs) far and away outweighed the music we played and that's the real reason why we didn't release any of it because we didn't really play that well because it wasn't about uh, how well we executed our music. It was about being there on a total eclipse of a full moon night and in a mind-blowing place that has all the historic uh, uh, weight and depth uh, that you can possibly imagine. So the Grateful Dead was like a, a, a grain of sand in the desert there. So, so th- that's really what happened to the music but as far as being there and as far as witnessing it and experiencing it it was as you say there was no ace hardware and then <laughs> there was very little of anything and in fact we probably had the only electricity that was on in cairo for from our generators at, at for great periods of time 
Um, Cairo shuts down every day. The phones turn off. The electricity turns off. Everything shuts down uh, during uh, facing Mecca time. And uh, so it's, it's really going there is like a whole cultural experience that's unlike anything uh, you, if you grew up in America or in, anywhere in the Western world that you would know. But um, so the, 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 the challenge was to see if we could set all that stuff up, actually get it to work, and actually perform and, and pull off a gig, which we did. Um, uh, it, but it was it was by hook or by crook, and it was hair raising at times because we reckoned we reckoned before we even left that if, if anything we needed, we would have to take with us because there's no you can't go and buy a flashlight battery for your flashlight there. Okay, I mean I, it's really really you're really on your own about that kind of stuff. So we we pretty much were prepared to go to the North Pole or the South Pole in the sense of we had, we had uh, all of our provisions, right? Um, so, uh, but, and everybody, we took a lot of people, and uh, we went there as a kind of a cultural exchange. Um, President and Madam Sadat uh, came at the, on the closing night and, and, and welcomed us and stuff. So it was a, mar- a wonderful, marvelous cultural experience. Um, more more than the Grateful Dead playing. So, if if you if you sort of put that template over it, uh, you can see that that the, the fact that we were there and we got to play and we got to witness it, it was a treat for all of us. But it wasn't necessarily uh, an example for all of the for for all the Grateful Dead world. Okay, and it wasn't meant to be that. Did you? Uh... Did you take the trip on the Amazon with Skippy Loren and Garcia, or did you go into the indigenous places and record no. with Mickey Hart? But what did you do after? Because everybody went their separate ways. Did you record it all? Any in the? Indi- I, I went home, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. We didn't. I didn't arrive at the gig until the day before the gig wow. because we were finishing Shakedown Street album. That's right. And That's so right. Jerry and John Kahn and Keith and I stayed behind. And finished. We had the record company was on our necks. We were under the gun to deliver the album. We were already probably two weeks late on it or, or, or more. Uh, and uh, the record company has all of their they they have schedules that they have to meet, and they can't just up and release a record. They st- they have to start months ahead of time, getting all the artwork together, getting all the arrangements together for the release of an album. So, in other words, releasing an album is is more than just putting it out. It's not like today where you can just put it online and everybody grabs it. It was a big deal. It had to do with printing uh, record jackets and stamping out the records and stuff. So it's, it's, it was a big deal, and so. Uh, we couldn't just blow them off. I mean, we we had we had uh, had agreed, and and our you know uh, it was our part of the of the agreement was that we would deliver an album. So we stayed behind while everybody else went there. Some of them as much as two weeks ahead of time. A lot of the family part people and stuff went and got this sort of vacation because the intention of Egypt was really a vacation. For all of us, okay. Wow. But wow. the four of us had to stay back behind. And when I, when the, the when it was over, I had to then come back and uh, and do the mastering and all of that final stuff for the for the Shakedown Street album. Okay. So I was I I didn't get to I didn't get the vacation like everybody else did. 
um, I, I was, it was nose to the grindstone for I me. I mean, still, the guy never takes, Dan Healy never takes a vacation. Maybe you did, maybe, <laughs> I mean, you know, I got to tell you, uh, you're a pal, man, and uh, I'll, I'll, during Hanukkah, I'm going to reach out to you again. Maybe we can do a little bit more, and uh, we'll let, this, right, let this breathe for a while. But uh, did you have a good yeah. time? Did you have a good time today? I did. That's fun. It's fun talking about old times and stuff like that. I, I, I enjoy being able to go over and remember stuff because a lot of really incredible things happen, and it took so much for all of this to have all transpired from 1962 up until today. Um, all of the people and all of the, the equipment and all of the music and everything that, and all the audience Everything that I that I witnessed and, and and experienced was just incredible. I mean, it's it's a story that almost can't be told, except for here we are trying to. Well, tell here we are it. trying to do it, and and again, it's this is again, it's it's nostalgia for you. But I I, I make no joke. Being born in '78, never seeing Healy, never seeing the dead. This is all a fantasy for me, and it's a, and I want to make sure that that younger generations understand that in order to create new vocabulary and music this is one template to do it so thank you for being a human being my friend much love to you man all right jk and thanks for you uh, hanging up sitting there listening to me rave man yeah uh, we'll do it again yeah and listen please i'll email you but please if you if you dig out some of that studio stuff i'd love to hear that that i'll that, try that. to find some things and shoot it to you later on dan okay Ben. bye bud Dan Healy in the books, number two, trying to talk about something that really is almost indescribable, uh, the 60s period in San Francisco, the regional sounds, and ultimately the music that came from it. We'll be back tomorrow with the Jake Feinberg Show. Until then, see you later. Easy in